0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs>
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Foibles. We are going to do another podcast about a novel by Vladimir Nabokov. Now, you know from our past broadcasts or whatever we call them. Episodes. Episodes. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, that's the word you're looking for. Episodes. We did *Pale Fire*, which we both loved. Is one of the greatest books ever written, and the one we're doing today, *Pinin*. Well, we say it *Pinin*, yeah. But I guess actually we should correct ourselves. It's *Pinin*, but I don't really want to say it that way. I know *Pinin* sounds like a *panini*. Yeah. You know, like a Italian sandwich. So uh, we're gonna say it *Pinin*, but we are well aware that the Russian pronunciation is *Pinin*. Yes. And so this is another book. Vladimir Nabokov takes two places on my list of 10 best books ever written. And it seems like Lolita is not even on the top 10. No, it isn't. And that is his most famous book. Uh, So basically on our last podcast, if you haven't listened to it, you really should. It's a really good one. And we do talk a lot about vladimir nabokov's biography who he was and so forth so we're not going to do that this time we're not going to repeat that whole thing again so if you want that go back to that podcast so just to ground you a little bit nabokov was a child born before the russian revolution he was raised in privilege when the revolution hit his family had to leave the country He didn't have a lot of money anymore, even though he'd been raised in a very wealthy situation. Uh, He was a writer. He spoke many languages, French, English, Russian, perhaps some others. He eventually, over time, moved through Europe and migrated into the United States where he became a professor. And this is where we get into the things that are very specific to this book that he used. And that is that he taught at Cornell and Wellesley Colleges and what did he teach? Literature. Duh. That's what he did for a living while he was writing and ultimately when Lolita hit big
0: time he was able to be become rich and he quit teaching. By the way before we get any further into the podcast just FYI we put up a new wind chime out on our porch and the wind is blowing so I think you can hear it in the recording but it's very light and we like this noise so I hope that you enjoy the ambiance (laughs) of the wind chime in our future podcasts.
1: It will give you just a real sense of being here with us okay,
0: let's get into the book.
1: I'll give you a little history. But first, I just wanted to say my, my experience with it is I've read it only twice. And the first time I read it many decades ago, decades, ago, I don't even know, 30 years ago, say. And I really liked it. I thought it was, you know, it was good. I thought it was charming. And then when uh, Zoe and I were doing our, we do the reading out loud, which we talked about before. So I thought, well, let's do Pin In. I mean, I've read it myself. I enjoyed it. I thought it would be very entertaining. I knew it would be entertaining. And I thought, well, it might be a little hard to read because the writing and the structure of the sentences is complex. It's not hard to read, really, when you're reading it on your own. But when you're trying to read out loud and you're not a professional by any means, the punctuation and the flow can be sometimes a little bit difficult to get into. But I decided to forge ahead so that we could have something a little more sophisticated than Nancy Drew, (laughs) some of the things we were reading. While I was waiting for it to come up in the queue of our reading life, I went ahead and read it myself. And I went, oh God, this is great. I mean, this time I picked out so much more, many more levels and the beauty of the writing and the various imagery, yet it's fun and light and you don't even need to see any of that stuff in order to really enjoy this story so i thought oh yeah this would be great and then i read it again to zoe so i basically read it three times
0: and i loved it i thought that i completely agree it's i haven't read enough books to make any judgment calls about what the top 10 best books ever <laughs> written were but it is one of my favorite books now after having read it um absolutely neck and neck with pale fire they capture very different aspects of nebokov's genius i guess
1: absolutely it is called nabokov's answer to don quixote because he wrote it a year after he had read don quixote which uh, for those I, i'm sure everyone knows this and i don't want to treat anybody like an idiot but i'll just say it which is a book by cervantes and it's a, it's a famous book about a man who has gone crazy or has he you know, is, or is he the only sane one in a crazy world who uh, believes himself to be a knight errant and he's going out and, and tilting at windmills? That's where that imagery comes from of someone who has that sort of high-minded yet impractical... Uh, delusion. Delusion, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, But Nabokov didn't like about that book as he felt that the author was being very cruel and essentially um, actually setting up Don Quixote to be a a figure of ridicule for his
0: antics and so forth. So Penin is his way of speaking to that. Which I think it's very cleverly done, because he wins you over to the character of Penin so quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. And Penin is, um, like Don Quixote, is a figure that has his own... A good use of the word foibles here, which is also the name of the (laughs) the podcast. You know, his own idiosyncrasies. He's not unintelligent, but he's a little ridiculous. Absolutely. He's the absent-minded professor. And it's very funny because
1: apparently Nabokov was kind of like that, too. Penin is basically this unmarried, absent-minded professor who specializes in old Russian literature, who comes over from Russia during the revolution he comes through europe he ends up in the united states and he's teaching at a college which is the biography of nabokov and the college in the book is wayndell which is the same college that charles of pale fire was teaching at
0: i think there's maybe one sentence in pale fire that alludes to the character of penin so it's a it's a fun little extended universe yeah teeny, moment, teeny. A little yeah exactly it is it's really great
1: And of course you wouldn't know unless you knew about this other book that he was making that reference. So all of us insiders now know about that. So basically the story is he's teaching at this college. And so there's not like a ton of plot. It's mostly slices of his life experiences. He has as he goes through his year and you just get a sense of who he is and the people he knows and how he relates to them. There's really not a whole lot. I mean, we'll talk about some of the things that happened, but there's not like a plot arc so much. In this book but oh my gosh we I just read this when I did my research the original ending was pin and dies
0: no oh
1: by the way sorry guys I, I we should we always say this at the top of the episode we will spoil this book in every way we think necessary so if you don't want to know what happens read the book first and then listen to this but I will tell you that the plot does not matter Knowing what's going to happen really doesn't matter. except there's one point in the book which we will not spoil, that we we'll will talk about it. We'll, but we won't say we'll what talk happens. around it. We won't yeah, and we'll just kind of allude to it because it's the kind of thing that it's so powerful, so heartrending that I don't want to spoil it. So Penin is based on, Nabokov himself a little bit and his experiences, but he's also apparently based on another professor that Nabokov knew at Cornell University, knew pretty well, who was a professor in old Russian and so forth. And his name was Mark Zeftel or Sheftel, depending on how the spelling goes. And he was a big expert in his area. And he had been in Russia before the revolution, I mean, he was one of those emigre groups. But basically, I guess he wasn't too
0: pleased with being the inspiration for this book. <laughs> this is very funny. Which makes sense because, as I said before, Penin the character, is a bit ridiculous. But 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 entirely lovable and yeah.
1: admirable, too. And that's the thing. He creates this, this hero who is... He's pure of heart, he's a Galahad, but he's wrapped in this package of risibility that it's a masterful depiction because normally for someone to be heroic, for someone to be that that lovable, they have to somehow be good looking or they have to do outwardly heroic things or something. But no, this guy he is he seems kind of bumbling, he seems all these things but Ultimately, in every way that really matters, he has a sterling character and is a sterling person.
0: The book itself, Penin, is such a, as I said, slice of life. And Nabokov really likes... His writing is very colorful to me in the sense of his attention to sensory detail, everyday objects, sort of the mundane. And yet the story somehow embodies an archetypal quality to it. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, so it's like an inversion of a hero's journey, where nothing about the book is like a hero's journey, and yet somehow it still is. He still, yeah, he, yeah, I, I agree. That's a good
1: point. And he doesn't look like a hero by any stretch of the imagination. And that, and given that we have the certainly in the Western world, but I think as human beings, this analogy that what is good is beautiful, what is beautiful is good, this is not it at all. He breaks from that but it's still very perfectly effective. I love this book so much. It was published in 1957 and he had been writing Lolita first. He started Lolita but they kind of overlapped because as he was finishing Lolita he wrote they were at first uh, separate like stories about this character so it wasn't a novel at first Mm. and he was writing those and he was shopping those around and trying to get them published to just make a little money while he was trying to get the novel published i see yeah and then ultimately it, beca- it came to be a, a, a full novel but i think that that has a lot to do with why there isn't an arc i mean there's little arcs and kind you know kind of but not really there isn't that grand arc of of the book it but feels anecdotal yeah it really does which is fine because he's such a great writer he ended up putting together enough structure with what he did that you feel that it's a whole so yeah, and it was a very popular book when it came out. I think it was nominated for National Book Award, but I never hear anybody talking about this book when they talk about It's always Lolita. I think you said something
0: about Pinin being kind of the anti-Lolita.
1: That's kind of how I see it, yeah. It's sort of like if you take the two main characters, Pinin and Humbert Humbert, who is the main character, there really almost isn't a protagonist <laughs> barely in Lolita. I mean, you could Consider Lolita to be a protagonist, but she I see is more almost, he almost makes her into a MacGuffin. Although there is enough of a person there that's not quite fair, I, I would say. But, but Humbert Humbert is the opposite. There's the, the vainglory, the depiction of himself is oh, he's so handsome, he's so, you know, he's so intelligent, he's so, all this vanity, narcissism, narcissism. And, and of course, with narcissism comes a, a lack of empathy. For other people. Nasty, I mean, pathology. yeah Using of other people, yeah. And Penin is the opposite of that. He's caring and sympathetic and... Uh,
0: Simple and...
1: And he doesn't really... Honest. That's basically the book. We can get more into the plot such as it is and maybe read you a few passages. So the book opens with Penin on a train going to Cremona, I guess is the name of the fictional town, to deliver an address... Uh, a lecture, I should say, to the women's club. I don't know if they're specifically a book club. At the time, there was a fashion for women to get together and have intellectual societies where they would bring in speakers to deliver lectures on various things in the arts or sciences and so forth. So it was a way to have continuing education for women. And Zoe is going to read us an introduction to our main character.
0: Well, I don't know. I'm trying to decide because I kind of like the way you read it to me like oh. I you were self-conscious about stumbling over sentences but i really like your reading voice and okay sure. i also like your rendition of penin's uh <laughs> russian accent oh my god okay i think it's very endearing <laughs> i'll so, try i'll try here we go
1: chapter one an elderly passenger sitting on the north window side of that inexorably moving railway coach next to an empty seat and facing two empty ones was none other than Professor Timothy Pinin, ideally bald, suntanned, and clean-shaven, he began rather impressively with that great brown dome of his, tortoiseshell glasses, masking an infantile absence of eyebrows, apish upper lip, thick neck, and strong manned torso in a tightish tweed coat, but ended somewhat disappointingly in a pair of spindly legs, now flannelled and crossed, and frail-looking, almost feminine feet. I'm going to these a few sentences here, and I'm going to move to the place, the second page of the entire novel, where my heart was lost to Pinin. Prior to the 1940s, during the staid European era of his life, he had always worn long underwear, its terminals tucked into the tops of neat silk socks, which were clocked, soberly covered, and held up on his cotton-clad calves by garters. In those days, to reveal a glimpse of that white underwear by pulling up a trouser leg too high would have seemed to Penin as decent as showing himself to ladies minus collar and tie. For even when Madame Rue, the concierge of that squalid apartment house, in the 16th arrondissement of Paris, happened to come up for the rent while he was without his faux col, Prim Penin would cover his front stud with a chaste hand. All this underwent a change in the heady atmosphere of the new world. Nowadays, at 52, he was crazy about sunbathing, wore sports shirts and slacks, and when crossing his legs would carefully, deliberately, brazenly display a tremendous stretch of bare shin. (laughs) (laughs) He's not only on the train going to the lecture, but Nabokov masterfully sets up Penin's difficulty dealing with material objects of the world because unfortunately for penin he has a thesis written by one of his students in one pocket and then he's got his lecture in another pocket and he's constantly trying to figure out where to put the his lecture to make sure that he has it and should he put it in his overcoat Should he put it in his valise should he put it you know and there's always something wrong with each of those places that could go wrong so he's setting you up because then you know there's going to be a problem <laughs> with 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 finding the lecture at the right time so i just wanted to read just a little bit his life was a constant war with insentiate objects that fell apart or attacked him or refused to function or viciously got themselves lost as soon as they entered the sphere of his existence. He was inept with his hands to a rare degree, but because he could manufacture in a twinkle, a one note mouth organ out of a pea pod, make a flat pebble skip 10 times on the surface of a pond, shadow graph with his knuckles a rabbit, complete with blinking eye, And perform a number of other tame tricks that russians have up their sleeves he believed himself endowed with considerable manual and mechanical skill electric devices enchanted him plastic swept him off his feet he had a deep admiration for the zipper but the devoutly plugged in clock would make nonsense of his mornings after a storm in the middle of the night had paralyzed the local power station the frame of his spectacles would snap in mid-bridge leaving him with two identical pieces which he would vaguely attempt to unite in the hope, perhaps, of some organic marvel of restoration coming to the rescue. The zipper a gentleman depends on most would come loose in his puzzled hand at some nightmare moment of haste and despair. And still, he did not know that he was on the wrong train. And I delight in that, because Nabokov will... He says he's on the wrong train. Okay, you're all, like, worried about that. What's going to... And then he goes off, and he tells you about pen in, and another long introductory section about his inability with mechanical things and his relation to your life. And then you get so involved in that, and then suddenly goes, oh, by the way, he's on the wrong train. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that's right. And he does that a couple of times, and it's very clever because he knows how to do it just long enough and be interesting enough to make you forget. And then he reminds you.
0: And he makes you more and more invested in Panin, so as it, yeah. the, the tension builds in that very unusual way, where you're like, "Oh no!" Like maybe this isn't the most serious problem in the world, but you're just like, "Oh, I want this to work out for him." Oh,
1: and Panin is so sure he's on the right train and that he made a very time-saving choice in doing this. Yeah. Basically, the, the problem with the train is it—he um, had a five-year-old schedule, and he thought that this express train he was on stopped in Cremona, but it was outdated. And it didn't. And the, the train was not going to stop in Cremona.
0: <laughs> and so the funny thing about Penin's character is that he's very meticulous. He's very pedantic and kind of rigid and like always going step by step by step, which generally speaking would make someone more competent in like that very staid way or more efficient. But he's just not. He's so hapless. And Absolutely. accidents just happen to him. And <laughs> yeah.
1: The conductor, a gray-headed, fatherly person with steel spectacles placed low on his simple, functional nose, and a bit of soiled adhesive tape on his thumb, now had only three coaches to deal with before reaching the last one, where Penin rode—a little Hitchcockian suspense building there. Penin, in the meantime, had yielded to the satisfaction of a special Peninian craving; he was in a Peninian quandary. Among other articles indispensable for a Paninian overnight stay in a strange town, such as shoe trees, apples, dictionaries, and so on, his Gladstone bag contained a relatively new black suit he planned to wear that night for the lecture before the Cremona ladies. It also contained next Monday's Symposium lecture, which he intended to study the next day on his way to Waynedale, and a paper by the graduate student Betty Bliss that he had to read for Dr. Hagen, who was her main director of Cerebration.
0: <laughs> Cerebration.
1: <laughs> Thinking.
0: Right. I like that. So therein we have the Paninian adjective. Adjective. So you can use this in your life now. After you read the book, you'll have a very rich sense of what Paninian means. I think you just said that to me today.
1: Yes. Yes. Mother, you're having somewhat of a Paninian difficulty with that zipper, are you not? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I like that too, that phrase, um, the zipper on which gentlemen depend most, (laughs) which is, of course, his fly, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so ultimately, of
1: course, the conductor does come through and informs Penin that he is in the wrong train, and Penin is devastated. And then we have an entire, I mean, it could have been a Harold Lloyd silent film uh, of problems with his getting off and, and trying to find a bus and then... His baggage. And, and his baggage, but he leaves it, he che- he checks it, but then there's a different guy there and he won't give it to him. But that's where his lecture is. And it just goes on and on. And there's an acceleration to the problems and the anxiety and what is he going to do. And then ultimately, in the nick of time, he makes it to the Cremona Ladies Club and he has the correct lecture. There are so many passages in this book where nabokov really touches on that idea of who is this narrator what, and what kind of human being is this narrator and what kind of human being are they in relation to their creation and this person they're writing about the fictional narrator is the real narrator so that's a person how are they positioned vis-a-vis pinin or how are they recounting the story of another real human being right in the fictional level and then there's the author and who am I in relation to these creations where I am the god and how am I treating my own creation, kind of thing. And it's just very slight metatextual touches in this one. Very much so. And also, there's a, a complexity with the way the author or the narrator, either way you want to go, states who they are, what kind of person they are, and then how the book plays out, which is the opposite because he it tends to seem to present himself as somewhat misanthropic in terms of his characters and who he creates. But in the end, he creates this hero. I think, I think it's very interesting. So here's a passage that is m- one of my favorites. Oh, okay, let me say just contextually. So we're getting into the part where poor Panin is in the midst of this quandary. Is it going to be okay? We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. What's, and so he says, some people, and I am one of them, Hate happy ends. We feel cheated. Harm is the norm. Doom should not jam. The avalanche, stopping in its tracks a few feet above the cowering village, behaves not only unnaturally, but unethically. Had I been reading about this mild old man instead of writing about him, I would have preferred him to discover upon his arrival at Cremona that his lecture was not this Friday, but the next. Actually, however... He not only arrived safely but was in time for dinner a fruit cocktail to begin with mint jelly with an anonymous meat course chocolate syrup with vanilla ice cream and soon afterwards surfeited with sweets wearing his black suit and juggling three papers all of which he had stuffed into his coat so as to have the one he wanted among the rest thus thwarting mischance by mathematical necessity he sat on a chair near the lectern while at the lectern Judith Clyde, an ageless ageless blonde in aqua rayon with large flat cheeks stained a beautiful candy pink, and two bright eyes basking in blue lunacy behind a rimless pince-nez, presented the speaker.
0: And you just feel, like, relief. I know. You're so glad that he made it. Ah, pin in.
1: And then (laughs) you're just going to be launched into the next
0: thing. Yeah. (laughs) The next problem. Yeah, it is. I think um, when you mentioned Harold Lloyd earlier, that was pretty apt because reading his series of mishaps and it's not a balancing act because he's barely holding up a bunch of plates at once or something it's like safety last you know with Harold
1: Lloyd you've probably seen this um, very famous picture even if you've never seen the movie where he's clinging to one of the hands of this giant clock on a building and trying not to slip off
0: yeah, it very much gives you the sense of one of those hectic 1920s silent comedies. And really, once you, you know, you really look at this, it's actually quite complex
1: the way he's worked things in there because there's a period where right before Penin gets to the club, there's the whole train and there's a bus and there's a truck and he's trying to do... And then all of a sudden he makes it to town and he stumbles into a park and he feels like he's having a heart attack. And then he goes into this recursive flashback to when he was a child and was very, very ill. There's some Marcel Proust going on. I know. And then there is, this is where uh, Penin introduces one of the motifs, a uh, repeating motifs in the book, which is the squirrel, where in his flashback that as a child, he had a fever dream. There's a screen in his room, and on it there's this little squirrel holding this object that he's not sure what it actually is that the squirrel's holding. And he has a whole reverie about... It's so important to figure out what squirrel is holding and so he starts that out and then later when he wakes up from this seizure that he has he looks over and there's a squirrel in the park and so these little squirrels just appear and every time i'm surprised oh the squirrel i forgot about the squirrel <laughs> <laughs> it's just really delightful a little delightful uh, motif and as we go through what happens is um, we meet his colleagues so he does the Cremona and he goes back to school we meet the colleagues and he moves into a new room and he always has a problem with he's been there eight years and he's moved like 10 times because he always has sonic
0: problems with these places
1: he's living in. They're too loud They're or
0: too <laughs> drafty yes. or...
1: and they have a whole big thing about that. And uh, it's just, there's so much detail in all the characters and every person seems like a real person. So ultimately, he has a meeting with his first wife, well, his only wife, his divorced wife. And she's a, a child psychologist. And Nabokov really has a field day enjoying skewering psychology. He really thought it was stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you definitely get a flavor of, of 1960s or 70s intellectualism and, and Nabokov's take on that for sure. Yes, so his wife comes in with, it's hilarious because he had been married to her
1: and he's just, there's such a romantic aspect to their relationship on his side. And on her side, it's purely practical and purely, well, practical. And so she's with him, and then she goes with another guy, uh, who's uh, Eric Vind, who is another psychologist. She gets impregnated by him, leaves poor old Penin, and then when she wants to leave the country, Penin, who is her husband still, he's all set up to emigrate from Europe to United States. She goes back to him, and he takes her back, and he's delighted. He's he's in love with this child, even though he knows it's not his child, and he's all set. And he takes her to America with him. And since so she gets off the boat, Eric Vind walks up and he says, "Thanks a lot." Oh no, he comes up to him on the boat. Right. And he says, "Oh yeah, thanks a lot. You know, we're getting together, and this is the whole plan. And you know, you're a great guy." And he starts to be friends with him. <laughs> and Penin, he's just so loving and mild, but not in a way that you go, "Oh, what a you know, what a dope. doormat." Yeah. Yeah, what a dope. This because it comes really truly from his heart and what he how he really feels. And so she goes off with this guy. She has Victor, her son. uh, and then at some point she's starting to break up with Eric. Eric. Yeah, they're not going and and Eric never really cared for the kid much anyway. And at this point Victor's how old? About
0: fifteen, maybe. Anyway, he's about that age. And so she (laughs) you wanna tell it? Well, she goes to Penin, and she's like, hey, can you just take him for the summer? Yeah, and by
1: the way, he needs some pocket money because I'm sending him to this fancy boarding school now, which is why I think he's in high school. And all these other kids are super rich. And so you just live in a rented room. You don't have very many needs. You've got some extra money. Set aside some and send him some pocket money every month. (laughs) It's like, you never even met this kid. (laughs) But he's like, okay, fine. And his introduction and
0: relationship with Victor is so tender it really is they just recognize each other they like see each other Mm -hmm. and most of his relationship with Victor is developed quote-unquote off screen you don't see a whole lot of Victor after they initially meet but there's again there's Nabokov tells the story through the objects in the book and the Mm -hmm. you know people around Penin referring to Victor and that's a very delicate drawing of the portrait of their relationship yes And uh, at one point
1: later in the novel, he has a party and he serves punch in this, I guess it's a gorgeous, beautiful, large aquamarine bowl that probably people are telling him, that bowl must have cost $200. And this is from a kid in college. And so Victor must have really, you know, he had to have really saved up his pocket money to give Penin this, not only is it beautiful and it's also expensive, And all of that goes into say how much I care about you, Mm -hmm. how much you mean to me. And he doesn't tell us that. He just shows us the bowl and Penin's pride in the bowl. And everyone is just awestruck by, wow, this is a very fine piece that this college boy sent you. And it's it's so touching. You wouldn't
0: think that you could be so moved about a punch bowl. Yeah, it's very moving.
1: Yeah, and then later uh, he begins to have political problems at the university in terms of that uh, Penin is in a really sort of an offshoot of the German department because they don't have a Russian program there, a separate one. And the professor who brought Penin in as a Penin champion, really supports him, really protected him, is leaving for a much better job because there's been some, what was his name, Bobo tells something like that (laughs) this other professor came in and was kind of ousting him out and and kind of taking over he is not a penin fan so penin is going to get ousted so poor dr hagen he's trying to find another place in the university where penin can go and like the english department says no we're not and there's another place where they do teach russian they go well the fact that he actually knows russian sorry that's a problem because he's making fun of how oftentimes professors don't even know what they're teaching or you're one lesson ahead of your students because they needed somebody to fill the slot and you just got the class which does happen so he can't find a place for him at the university the place where he's going says no we we have a, a full program he was planning to buy a little house and he was really really happy about that and we were so happy for him so happy for him that he'd lived in these rooms and he Finally, was going to get a raise, he believed, and and be brought on with tenure. And he was going to have this little small house that he was uh, thinking about buying. And everything was going to settle down for Penin and be be nice. And then this upheaval, and he basically gets, well, he doesn't really, he says he got fired. He says he got shot. (laughs) But he really didn't get fired in as much as he could have stayed on. But he refused and when you find out who the person is when you're reading the book you understand why he refused but it was a moral high ground it was a principled decision on his part where he's like no i will not work with this person and again that's where you see the heroics of Pinin, because this decision is heroic when you really come down to it so he finds out all this stuff he is devastated he's walking across the campus it's icy he almost slips he comes he's walking past a water fountain and a squirrel jumps up on the wa- up on the water fountain and chitters at him and looks at him and Penin knows what the squirrel is telling him and he pushes the lever for the water to go and the squirrel drinks the water <laughs> and he's standing there suffering but he's not going to keep the squirrel from having his
0: drink yeah
1: and then the squirrel bounds away without any thanks) <laughs> And there's this little white dog, I guess, who's a stray, who he saw when he was living in his little cozy house and all happy. And he'd give the dog little table scraps and kind of feed him. And so after he finds out, immediately after he finds out about it, he finds out about losing his job. Job, like minutes afterwards, he's in his kitchen, and they they had this party and there's all these little scraps left. And he takes them and he puts them in a little bag and he's sort of like, well, there's no reason for the dog to suffer.
0: Oh. Yeah, He's so thoughtful. It's just really impressive to me and a kind of sophistication and delicacy that you don't see very often in writing anymore, but how Nabokov builds this whole story and whole character to the point where when something... Bad is going to happen to Pinin, or when you know he's going to lose his job, you almost can't bear it. Yeah, he's not freaking out, even though he's devastated and going through a lot. But it's the reader that like can't handle it. I know. If
1: this happens,
0: I'm going to cry. Yeah, and I'm going to rip this book up and throw it in, in the garbage. Yeah, if this
1: happens, you know, you feel that way. And that's the thing is now we get to. The question we we're talking about the author getting back to Cervantes and then setting the audience up to laugh at the character so nimbokov is setting us up to absolutely be enraged with the author basically it's like how authors through their characters somehow are they being cruel or kind to the reader and so i think that that's another little metatextual idea he's kind of playing with like what is he going to do to us yeah because i mean i almost
0: cried yeah a couple times during this book i don't know it's so interesting you just like you feel like you need to protect penin because he must he's so delicate or he's so precious or whatever yeah i mean he is precious yeah exactly but he's he's actually not that fragile and that's kind of what you see at the very end yeah where it's like you know actually penin he doesn't die he's gonna do his own thing he's gonna be okay so at the end there are several things that happen
1: in the book that we have not told you that are more impactful and more important than than really what the end is. He decides not to work with this guy. he has no job, anything he can't stay at the house because he can't rent it anymore So at the very end, Penin he just
0: he's gonna go on continue his hero's journey if you will well, um one glaring omission that uh I realize is that we've read some really great passages from the book, but we haven't read any passages of dialogue. <laughs> oh, you really want me to do that, huh?
1: Yeah. Oh, God, it's going to be terrible. All right, let's find, find one of Pinin talking. So um, this is right after Penin's ex-wife, Lisa, comes to visit him. And when she tells him she's coming, he's all oh, agog. What is she going to say? What does she want? Obviously, he knows she wants something from him. And he's like, maybe she'll tell me right up front what she wants and then it will be longer that she stays in other words you tell me that then the rest of it is like I can be there I can we have this to spend time it. together we spend time together well she gets there and she doesn't so they're talking they're laughing, and you can just feel again Nabokov doesn't say this but you know that Penin hopes and, and and is thinking that maybe she's going to come back to him that maybe they'll be together again and there's one point in it where she's talking, she's lying on his bed in his room because he's rented a room and he's sitting in a chair and she's talking to him about something. They're reminiscing. And, and Nabokov says, his eyes were like stars. Yeah. Which is everything about what's going on in his heart. And then what, basically what she's there to, to do is to ask him, to tell, to tell him basically, to send Victor money and that Victor could come and stay with him. And then she leaves. And he's devastated absolutely devastated so he's got a very good relationship with uh, the people he stays with and especially the woman her name is Joan but he calls her John and they think that's hilarious and uh, John and her husband had gone out of the house so he and Lisa could be alone in the house together and she comes back she put her bag and parcels down on the sideboard in the kitchen and asked in the direction of the pantry what are you looking for Timothy he came out of there darkly flushed, wild-eyed, and she was shocked to see that his face was a mess of unwiped tears. I searched John for the viscous and sawdust, he said tragically. I'm afraid there is no soda, she answered with her lucid Anglo-Saxon restraint, but there is plenty of whiskey in the dining room cabinet. However, I suggest we both have some nice hot tea instead. He made the russian relinquishing gesture no i don't want anything at all he said and sat down at the table with an awful sigh she sat down next to him and opened one of the magazines she had bought we're going to look at some pictures timothy i do not want john you know i do not understand what is advertisement and what is not advertisement you just relax Timofey, and i'll do the explaining "'Oh, look, I like this one. "'Oh, this is very clever. "'We have here a combination of two ideas, "'the desert island and the girl in the puff. "'Now, look, Timofey, please.' "'He reluctantly put on his reading glasses. "'This is a desert island with a lone palm, "'and this is a bit of broken raft, "'and this is a shipwrecked mariner, "'and this is the ship's cat he saved, "'and this here on that rock.' "'Impossible,' said Penin. So small an island, never moreover with palm, cannot exist in such a big sea. Well, it exists here. Impossible isolation, said Penin. Yes, but really, you're not playing fair, Timothy. You know perfectly well you agree with Lore that the world of the mind is based on a compromise with logic. I have reservations, said Penin. First of all, logic herself. All right. I'm afraid we are wandering away from our little joke. Now, you look at the picture. So this is the mariner, and this is the pussy. And this is a rather wistful mermaid hanging about. And now look at the puffs right above the sailor and the pussy. Atomic bomb explosion, Pinin said sadly. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. It is something much funnier. You see, these round puffs are supposed to be the projections of their thoughts. And now, at last, we are getting to the amusing part. The sailor imagines the mermaid as having a pair of legs, and the cat imagines her as all fish. Lermontov, said Pinin, lifting two fingers. He's expressed everything about mermaids in only two poems. I cannot understand American humor even when I am happy. And I must say... He removed his glasses with trembling hands elbowed the magazine aside and, resting his head on his arm, broke into muffled sobs.
0: Oh, He's so adorable.
1: I, know. I a atomic bomb explosion. <laughs> no, they're just thought bubbles. <laughs> in a cartoon. Oh, I just so hope that we have somehow gotten you interested in this book and, and that you'll pick it up and you'll read it. I, I guarantee you'll love it. And the version we have, it's only 190 pages. So it's 190 pages that just reads fast and it's just packed with joy. Go for
0: it all. Yeah, go for it, guys. And Penin is spelled P-N-I-N. Yes. So you can find it used copy online somewhere. On oh, Netflix. yeah, cheap. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Take care, everyone.
1: If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.